Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. All right, today we finish out the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. This is week five. We are almost there. I don't think next week we'll have any trouble getting through Joshua. Now, I haven't finished preparing that lesson yet, but it should be less challenging than Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus. So um, looking forward to that. The name Deuteronomy comes from the Septuagint mistranslation of a phrase. Okay, so let me back up and explain that a little bit. Septuagint, are you guys with me? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's ancient. This is not the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, some people confuse it with that. Just think of them as the same thing. The Septuagint is ancient. We've had it for thousands of years um, since before Christ. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the name Deuteronomy comes from a mistranslation there of the phrase, a copy of this law a copy of this law. So it, second law is less accurate. I'm sorry. It, yeah, it's a mistranslation of a copy of this law. The word actually means second law. Sorry for my lack of clarity there. Uh, it means second law, but that's a mistranslation of a copy of this law. Okay, you get the idea. There's, there's no second law. This is a retelling of the original law. There's one law. So that's less accurate. That's all. It really means a retelling of the law. It's, it's here in Deuteronomy, this retelling, um, it repeats, it amplifies the law with different emphases given by Moses. Okay, we'll unpack that quite a bit here in the coming minutes. But I want to ask a question. Do you guys know anyone who loves Deuteronomy? I know a lot of people who... Yeah. I think the way I asked that question is making you guys think you should say no. You, you do know a lot of people who love Deuteronomy. You know me. Um, I've known a lot of people who love Deuteronomy. So really what I'm asking is, why do so many people that we respect, you know, people that I've admired for decades, love Deuteronomy? I don't know if I can point to anyone who just loves Leviticus or Numbers. But people love Deuteronomy. Why? Why do you think that is? Yes. Okay, Moses. I mean, Moses wrote the other ones too, and it's a retelling of the law. There's not a ton of new material here. Why do you think people love Deuteronomy? All the laws? I don't know. I don't think I, I don't. It's a good discussion, but I don't think we've hit it yet. Anybody else? Yeah? Okay. We're more of a narrative than some of those other books. Okay. Are part of the 
it's a summary, it's more of a narrative, so are you guys getting it? It's a little easier to digest and process? Sort of? Okay. I'm sorry, Kevin? And apply, okay. Yep, I agree with all of that. Okay. I have some other thoughts too. I think they'll come out in the course of this hour. So um, think about that. We have a lot, we know a lot of people who, who love Deuteronomy. This book is primarily a series of discourses or sermons. I wrote that early in my preparation, and I'm not sure now at the end of my preparation that I like calling it a series of sermons, though. We'll see. But it's primary, primarily a series of discourses, talks, lectures, whatever you want to call it, given by Moses to the Israelites in preparation for entering the Promised Land. It includes a renewal of covenant obligations. Okay, not new stuff, not, not, there's no new covenant here. It includes a renewal of those covenant ob obligations. It recounts the works of the Lord, okay? But we already, we've already studied those works of the Lord in Genesis and Exodus primarily and some in Numbers, okay? So, but that's what's going on here. Moses recounts the works of the Lord. It explains that Israel is God's unique people. God's their father, they are his children. Therefore, they must love and serve him. That's, in a way, a summary statement. This book, uh, this is the book, by the way, that Jesus quotes from during his temptation in the wilderness. This is the only book he quotes from. That all of the, you remember what I'm talking about in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, and he always quotes the word of the Lord? That word is always Deuteronomy. There's a profound link between Jesus successfully battling Satan in the wilderness and the Israelites unsuccessfully fighting temptation in the wilderness. Another distinction between uh, this recapitulation, this retelling of the law and the original is in Exodus and Numbers, the Lord speaks to Moses. Okay, so Moses is always telling them what the Lord said. Here in Deuteronomy, he speaks, Moses addresses Israel directly. I don't, I don't know to what, it's all the word of the Lord, right? So I'm not driving that point too hard. I don't want to. But Moses is directly addressing Israel. I'm just saying this is very pastoral. And I hope to show over the course of this lesson that it's very personal. Okay, and, and that gets to what I think is the reason people love Deuteronomy. It's very personal. Have you read it? Some of you have, some of you haven't, I'm sure. Some of you, it's been a long time. It's very, very personal. This is not a long list of rules and regulations um, it is. That stuff's there, but it's very personal, and I think that's why people love it. It gets at our heart. It's from the heart of Moses. Imagine Moses at the end of his life. He's 120 years old now as we come to this book. Now, we, the word says his eyes are not dim, nor is his strength abated, but he is full of wisdom at this point. Forty years of leading these people through the wilderness, um, all the life experiences before that, 
So I'm not saying he's an old, feeble man. Scripture directly says he's not. But he's full of wisdom. He's full of years of frustration, years of love for these people, all the stuff that any leader of any people would have, any good leader, any godly leader, full of love um, and just full of wisdom from years and years of leading these people. He's heard directly from God. He has experienced things as a leader that I don't think can, can be compared to anyone else. And now he's ready to die, and this book is the message he most wants those people to hear. That's why I say this is from the heart of Moses. This is what he thinks of all the things that they need to hear. This is what they need to hear. They need to hear some of the same stuff. They need to hear his commentary on what they already knew. But this is what he thinks they need to hear before they enter the promised land. Everything's been leading up to this. So where are they? This is sort of review from last week. They're in the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River. Okay? So they are here, this area. It doesn't, I thought it would be, I didn't want to show the same map every week. That seems boring. So I chose this topographical map. This is the Jordan River. Okay, right here. What's this? Pop quiz. Dead Sea. What's up here? Sea of Galilee. Sea of Tiberias. Okay, does that get your bearings? A lot of us have been looking at maps of Israel all week in the news too. So Gaza's down here. All right, so where they are is this. They're in the vicinity of Amman, which is in modern-day Jordan. Okay, so this still, where they're at in Deuteronomy, is not Israel today. It was not Israel then. It's not the promised land. The promised land is on the other side of the river. Now, some of the Israelites did choose to inherit land over here, but you see what I mean. This is the promised land. Okay, so this is a collection of these final addresses given by Moses to the Israelites. The opening words of the book are, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness. So Deuteronomy begins exactly where Numbers ends, and it covers a period of about um, a month, 40 days, 30, 40 days. All right, that's all background information. Let's dive in. So I've divided the book. You see on your handout, I've divided it into four main sections. God's acts, God's law, God's covenant, God's servants. Okay, God's acts. This is the section that's a reminder of what God has done. God's law is the retelling of the law they already received. God's covenant is a renewal of that covenant. Same covenant, new generation of people, renewal of the covenant. And the fourth section is just the transition from Moses to Joshua. All right, here's our trusty map from last week. God's acts. Moses begins by summarizing God's guidance from Horeb. That's Sinai, right? Remember, Horeb is Sinai, okay? Sinai is the mountain here. So he begins by summarizing God's guidance from there to 
Kadesh Barnea. Okay? So he recounts that. He reminds the people of their failure at Kadesh Barnea. He reminds them of their rebellion, their unbelief of their parents. And he reminds them that this resulted in 38 years in the wilderness. Okay? So he starts, he recounts this. He recounts their failures. And then he recounts 38 years in that space. I'm 47 years old. If, if I am at this point in the plains of Moab over here, at this point in Deuteronomy, I'm probably near the upper limit of those who get to cross over into the promised land, right? I would have been about 10 years old when the incident at Kadesh Barnea happened. So it's my parents who were faithless, who didn't move into the promised land. I was about 10 years old. So it was really my parents' generation that caused the wandering. So anyone here a little older than me or all the way down younger, you're the original audience for this book. I'm not sure what my point is there. <laughs> it's for all of us, obviously, but for me, it, it helps to just get a picture of who he's talking to. It's the next generation, but it's not kids. You know, I don't feel that young, and it could, it could be given even to people five, seven, eight, whatever, years older than me. So that's the situation here as they're in the plains of Moab ready to move in. Okay, back to the outline. So Moses summarizes from Horeb, Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea. He reminds them of the wandering years. He reminds them how the Lord had brought them out of Egypt. That's what follows here. So he's recounting this part of the story, right? Remember, we divided this into three sections, from Egypt to Sinai, from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, wandering, all that before they move in to take the promised land. All along, in all of this recounting, he reminds them of the mighty deeds of God. And he's always reminding them of the covenant too. Remember the threefold blessing that God gave Abraham back in Genesis. Three, three things were in that promise. Numerous descendants first, the land, and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. So in recounting this history, he's reminding them that the first part was fulfilled, or at least they can see the beginnings of its fulfillment because they've grown to be big. That's what caused the whole problem in Egypt. They were growing in numbers and becoming more and more mighty. So as he recounts this, he's reminding them or pointing out to them that that part of the promise is being fulfilled, is largely fulfilled. It's moving toward realization. So here they are on the threshold of receiving the second part of that promise, the land. Now the final aspect will await the coming of the Messiah. So he recounts all of this and he urges the people to faithfulness and calls for their obedience to the Lord and to his law. That's what this book is all about. And this first section on your outline is Moses setting that, setting that up. That leads directly into the second part 
on, on your outline, the second part. Moses calls upon them to follow the Lord and his law, and then he expounds on the law. He begins with the Ten Commandments, which I think is very significant. He begins with the Ten Commandments because that is the most central part of the law. They need to follow all of it. It's all critical. It's all important. But this is the heart of it. The Ten Commandments are the heart of it. So he just, this is what he thinks they need to hear, what he knows they need to hear. He's going to go into some detail, but he starts there because that is central. So I think that's significant. Right after that is this beautiful section. Is any, from Deuteronomy 6, does anyone know what this is called? The Shema, okay, S-H-E-M-A. Shema Yisrael. Jewish people still recite this. Christians, I think, recite this. We should. We should at least be very familiar with it. I'm not saying we need to turn it into a mantra kind of thing, but it's beautiful, and the, the message is essential. It's been significant to the Hebrew people since Moses gave it. Let me just read it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Okay, the very beginning, the first part, that's a statement, that's a monotheistic statement. Okay, there's one God. This is distinct to Israel, and it's essential. They need to know, they need to be reminded that they serve one God, the one true God, as opposed to all the nations that they're ready to be influenced by who have multiple gods and who have false gods and idols. Moses tells them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You know, that's repeated in the New Testament. This is a... This is a summary. This is a summary of all the commands of the Lord. These words shall be in your heart. Then it goes on, you should teach them to your children, and we'll come back to this too a little bit later. Okay, this is huge. And you read this, I just read it out loud. Do you get the impression this is a dry, cold recitation of the law? I know parts of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers can feel that way. I'm hoping that I've explained how it's not, how it's wonderful and is God's word, and we have so much to learn and apply from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But yet, I get it. There are parts of, of that. We, we blew through it in 45 minutes for each book. But if you sit down and read it, there are parts, I think it's okay to be honest like that, that, that can feel feel dry and cold at times. So I get that, but not Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy really never feels that way. It's full of stuff like this. I think this is the height of it, but it's this kind of thing. It's personal. It's applicable to everyone. It's beautiful. 
So from here, Moses goes on to retell many, many laws. He has different, with a different purpose in mind than before. Um, the previous sections of the law just get it all out there. The lists, the rules, the regulations, all the different permutations of it, all the conditions. Here, though, the telling of the law is from the heart of Moses to the people. So he's telling them from experience how he knows they are prone to sin, prone to grumble. He understands their limitations. He understands God's perfect faithfulness. He retells the law with that in mind, and he does it with emotion and pastoral wisdom. We don't have anywhere close to enough time to go deeply into that, so instead what I've done is th this list, five things that I think Moses is trying to communicate to the people. Now, you can't step through Deuteronomy and come to this, and then come to this one, and then come to this one. These are more summary statements of the concepts that are different from the first telling of the law that I think Moses is wanting to communicate to them. First, they will be successful, and it will be because of the compassion and covenant faithfulness of God. They will owe it all to God, and none of it will be from their own righteousness. That's just a theme that comes up throughout the book. That's why he retells, he begins by retelling everything. He wants to remind them of God's faithfulness. Okay? And the whole book has an optimistic, victorious feel to it. They are going to conquer their enemies. They are going to take over the promised land, but it's going to be because of God, not because of them. I just want to briefly point out, this flies in the face of the, the tired old evangelical mindset that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. Okay? Hopefully, if you were part of Truth and Life the last two years, we've covered that in the theology modules. It just doesn't make any sense at all when you read Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is full of, of grace and mercy. So this book is that. It's not pounding on the table law. Second, love and obedience will be rewarded with blessing while disobedience will bring a curse. God's desire is to reward love and obedience. If they're faithful to the covenant, he's going to reward them. Okay, again, grace, mercy, it's full of it. We'll come back to that in the application section, but that is clearly, it's clear to me, clearly a theme throughout the book. Again, I keep saying it, not merely a list of rules and regulations, but full of grace and mercy that, and God wants that for his people. Okay, third, orderly government. Yeah, there are a lot of details here. Laws for judges, courts of appeal, priests, Levites, kings, prophets, all this stuff is, is here, again, in a more brief form. It's, these things are spelled out here, but the underlying principle Moses explains is that they're a nation governed by God because God has chosen them. Okay, so whereas Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, it's just get all the information out there, all the rules, all the restrictions, all that stuff. As Moses retells it and goes over the material again, he's emphasizing that this is because they belong to God. God has chosen them. 
out of all the nations of the earth, of all the people, God has chosen them. He wants what's best for them, and that includes an orderly government. It includes true worship of the only true God. It includes family rules and regulations and laws that are for their good. It's personal and it's fatherly. God chose Israel. He chose the priests and Levites. He chooses the place where he'll be worshipped because he loves them and will always care for them. So that's really, I guess, my, my big point for today. I want you to come away knowing that. When Moses goes through these details this time, it's fatherly, it's pastoral. It's the same information, sort of, but it's from a different angle. Okay, fourth, Moses spells out the abominations of the Canaanites, nine abominations in particular, for which they must be dispossessed. They're about to kick people out of their land. Did your hand go up, Mark? No. Okay, sorry. Um, for these nine abominations, they must be dispossessed. These practices must never be found among the people of God. So as he goes through the law, he's telling them about this stuff up here, but now I'm pointing out the fourth one. You're going to see some things that are wicked and evil. This whole generation has never been anywhere but the wilderness. There aren't many people in the wilderness. Uh, they, they have sin and grumbling and all these things in their heart, and they're not totally free from idolatry without these other influences. I just realized in preparing for this that we didn't even, at no point in this module did we talk about the golden calf. Can't get to all of it in the amount of time we have. But, so they're not free from idolatry, but they're about to go from the wilderness where it's only them and their friends and their family influencing them. Now they're going to see some things that are terrible. And Moses is saying, again, fatherly, pastoral. He's saying, I know you're about to go across the river and come under the influence of these people. Do not fall into the trap of their idolatry. This is deeply personal to Moses and God. And here we have a passionate appeal from Moses to avoid idolatry. Last, the laws of Deuteronomy are all presented in a way that makes it clear that spirituality should never be divorced from the rest of life. Again, not just lists of rules. This is to govern all of life. Love for God is to be expressed in every area of life, civil, domestic, personal. Remember the Shema. It's to be in their heart. Okay? These laws are to be in their heart, not just written down somewhere to consult like a book of church order now and then. These are to be in their heart. Okay, that is the second section. After that, Moses goes into this covenant stuff, and he tells them that on entry into the promised land, the Israelites are to assemble in two groups. Two groups, one on Mount Gerizim and the other on Mount Abel, E-B-A-L, Mount Abel. Six tribes on each, okay? These are the, this photo up here, this is what those two mountains look like today. Let me go back and show you where they are. 
Okay. Let's use this one. Okay, here's Jerusalem. Here's Jericho, by the way. So they're at this point, I drew the circle here, but you know, we think they're right in this area. Okay, Mount Abel and Mount Gerizim are here. Okay, just a little bit northwest. I'm pretty sure northwest. It's not perfectly to scale. This is basically where those two mountains are, okay? All right, let's go back to the photo. Okay, Gerizim is on the left. Abel is on the right. In between is the city of Shechem, by the way. Still there. Gerizim on the left. Uh, so we are, this, by the way, this is a view from the east looking west. With me? From the east looking west. Gerizim's on the left. Abel's on the right. Gerizim represents blessings. And Abel is curses. Okay, there is a pretty long section in Deuteronomy that tells them what they're to do here. So you've got six tribes on, the, on Gerizim, six tribes on Abel, and they are to shout the, result of the results of certain behavior. And the six tribes on Gerizim are saying, when you do this, God will bless you in this way. They're to shout blessings. Gerizim represents blessings. Abel is curses, and the curses section is long. It's longer than the blessing section. The, the six tribes on Abel are to recite, when you do this bad thing, you will be cursed. There's repetition. Go and read it when you, when you have time this afternoon or this week. Um, it's a very interesting section. The lists are long and detailed. In October of 2003, we read, um, we, Christ the Word Church, we read the blessings and curses. And it was a powerful time for a lot of us. I remember it was October of 2003 because it was the morning that my oldest daughter, Claire, was baptized. We had a lot of extended family here, and I think they thought it was pretty weird. Um, but for years and years, we as a church, we would read one whole chapter. If the chapter was short, we'd read a, a little bit. If it was long, we read the whole chapter. It didn't matter. Well, Jason Wiltsey read all the blessings and curses from, I don't remember what chapter number it was, but he read it all, and it was powerful. It's a... It's a <clears throat> It's beautiful when you understand the covenant implications of it. If you just sit down and you don't have any background on Abraham and all this other stuff, I don't think it's as powerful. But to me, and particularly to our church on that day, it was powerful. So this is not merely a commitment to the legal requirements of a contract. This isn't that covenant ratification. That's already happened, right? So it's not that. This is the personal pledge and promise of a living relationship expressed in the loving, faithful commitment of God and his people. Just imagine that. Imagine what that would have been like. It's very powerful, I think. I want to read 
a paragraph from a man named Gareth Crossley, who has been helpful to me in my preparation for these classes. He summarizes it, and I can't do any better, and I don't want to read it without me telling you this is not me. This is this other guy. The reiteration of the covenant here is followed by an overview of covenantal promise. The blessings God has promised will all be fulfilled. Israel will enter the land and drive out her enemies. God will set his name in their midst at the place of his choosing, but Israel will continue to rebel and the curses of the covenant will also be realized. The people will be driven from the land into exile. Then, after the blessings and curses, God will gather a scattered people, circumcise their hearts to love the Lord with all their heart and soul that they may live. That's what's happening here. They are renewing this covenant. They are making a deep, more, deeper, more personal relationship, identifying themselves to the covenant. Blessings and curses. Thoughts or questions about that? Okay. The fourth section, God's servants. Moses at this point knows full well he's nearing the end of his days. He tells the people God will not permit him to cross the Jordan. But it's important to note here that there's no resistance in Moses, none whatsoever. No resentment toward God, no resentment toward the people who provoked him to sin, who challenged him and made his life so difficult for all of these years. No resentment toward God, no resentment toward the people because Moses is a great man of God who knows God is just, he's humble, Moses. Moses is humble and he's grateful to God. Not only is he not any of those things, but what does he do at the very, very end? He leads the people in praise and worship with what we call the Song of Moses. So this here, what's on the board, is part of the Song of Moses. It's part of the first stanza. There are four stanzas in the song, and they outline the entire history of Israel, Israel's creation, Israel's gracious treatment by the Lord, um, Israel's ingratitude and apostasy, and God's judgment, but also Israel's salvation. Okay. We have time, I wanna read this. This is just part of it, but I think it's a good summary. This is Moses leading Israel in worship, maybe alongside Joshua. Some Hebrew traditions say that, that Moses and Joshua sang this before the people. I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. This is from the first stanza. So he's given the people at this point in the book, we're at the very end, he's given the people what he thinks they need to be spiritually stable for entering the promised land. And he ends here, this is the very end of his life. And he leads people in this, in this worship. So from here, Joshua is commissioned. Everyone already knew Joshua would succeed Moses, but at this point, the official commissioning happens. And then God tells Moses to go up to Mount Nebo. This is on the east side of the Jordan, right where I pointed out on the map before, directly east of the Jordan River, directly across from Jericho, which is their first stop, right? 
So God tells Moses to go up there because from there he can see the land. And you have to go and read this. I'm not going to be able to communicate it very well, I don't think. When you read this section, it's not at all, it doesn't have the flavor at all of go up there and see how you screwed up and now you don't get to go there. But it's, it, that message is not absent either. Right in the section, it, again, it's beautiful. God says, you don't get to do this because of your sin. Because you did not regard me as holy before the people. But it's not an in-your-face kind of thing. It's very realistic. But he sends him up there so that Moses can see. I think that's a blessing. I don't think that's, look, you screwed up. You don't go there. It's, look, Moses, this is where I'm sending my people. This is fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. That's the sense I get from it, but I want you to go read it too. So Moses gets to see it, but he doesn't get to go in, and then he dies. So let's think beyond this and look at some application. Every book in the Pentateuch so far has looked forward to Jesus, right? We spend time on that every week. Every book has shadows. It has types. This is no different. Every book has prophecy of Jesus. Every book has the types and shadows. Where, where are they here in Deuteronomy? We have a couple minutes. Any thoughts? We didn't look at very many specific passages, but those of you who have read it and are familiar with it, what, what here in Deuteronomy points to Jesus? Yes, absolutely. It's good. Yep, Cheryl? From a positive view, also do see Moses mediating to God for the people over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And that's, that covers a chapter and a half or so in Hebrews, I think. Yes, very much so. Those are both right on, I think. Any other thoughts? There is... Um, a prophet referred to many times in the book, in Deuteronomy here, a great prophet will arise. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Remember, John the Baptist was looking for the prophet. The book ends saying, there is not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. I think this is significant. We tend, to, we tend to look for messianic prophecies in Jesus as the Messiah. But I think nearly equally important in the, in the Old Testament, the people are taught to look for a prophet. They're taught to look for the prophet, the great prophet to come. That's who John the Baptist was looking for. Well, I think it's significant that Deuteronomy ends saying there hasn't been this prophet, okay? Because Deuteronomy was written later. Moses didn't complete the whole thing. He couldn't have recorded his own death, right? So he, Moses wrote everything down, and Deuteronomy, as we know it, came to the people significantly later. And God's saying, Moses told you to look for the prophet, but that prophet hasn't come. 
So I think this paves the way for Israel to keep looking for the coming of the prophet. The, the apostles emphasized the coming of the prophet in a way that we usually don't notice. Peter and Stephen linked the Messiah to the prophet in their sermons and acts. There's more that you know, we could talk about if we had more time. Jesus invited all who are thirsty to come to him and receive living water. And the people in response said, truly, this is the prophet. We all know Jesus as the Messiah. I think what we need to learn here is that they were, they were taught, we're taught to look for the prophet. Um, there's also the great curse. The first time, this is the first time we hear, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So the curses on Mount Abel point to Jesus Christ becoming accursed and replacing the curse upon his people with blessing. Curses and blessing. Paul in the New Testament draws from Deuteronomy and Galatians when he talks about Jesus becoming a curse for us. Okay, so the prophet, the curse, these are things that from Deuteronomy that point us directly to Jesus. The big point of application I want to cover here in the last two minutes is I don't, primarily for parents. I'm going to take you back to the Shema. As I said before, this book reveals the heart of Moses. It's a list of addresses, speeches, talks, whatever you want to call them, of the things Moses had learned himself and felt Israel needed to hear. It's all love, it's fatherly guidance. And so what does Moses say to us in the Shema? I'd say there are two parts. Okay. Can we divide, them into, divide it into two parts right there? The second part instructs us to teach these things to our children, but the first part comes first. You shall love the Lord your God. These words shall be in your heart. So we start here. Do you love the Lord your God? As soon as I became a father, I started really feeling the pressure of this. But I don't think I felt enough pressure for that, the first part. Do I have love for the Lord my God? Do you have love for the Lord your God? Once we have that, then we're in the position to pass along, pass that along to our children. And this type of thing happens naturally as we live together. So this here doesn't mean constantly lecturing your children and turning every moment into something heavy, right? You see that? It means you're always relating what's going on to God. Recognizing the theological truth of the first part. Making it a heart thing. Okay? That doesn't mean turning everything into something heavy. It means you're always relating your day-to-day -day stuff to God. Don't separate those two. We're always reminding, always teaching, always talking. All of life is spiritual, and our kids need to hear that from us and experience that from us. I'd say more than even hearing it, they need to grow up in, envir in an environment just not simply knowing that everything they're, they're uh, simply knowing that everything their parents are doing and saying and teaching has spiritual significance. So 
we're out of time. Everything here points to Jesus. If we're to have the words of Moses in our heart and teach them to our children, again, this, if we're going to do that, we are pointing them to Jesus. When we get up, when we sit down to relax, when we're driving in the car, when we're just kicking back in the evening, when we go to bed, all that time we're teaching our children about Jesus, or we should be, and we are, and so we need to do it deliberately with purpose. Um, I had a couple more points, but we're out of time. So next week, no more Pentateuch. We're on to Joshua. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.